Shining a light on autism and life on the spectrum. Welcome to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. A podcast breaking down barriers, stigma and misconceptions around autism. And now, here's your neurologically different host, Orion Kelly. Thanks for listening to My Friend Autism. I'm Orion Kelly and I'm autistic. What's critical to understand is that I'm just one person on the autism spectrum. So if you've met one person on the spectrum, well, you've met one person on the spectrum. No two autistic people are the same. We have individual challenges and gifts. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and engaging conversations on autism. This podcast seeks to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism while providing real insights into life on the spectrum. My aim is to have open conversations that inform and engage and ultimately make the world a better place for autistic people. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. I get a lot of questions about being autistic and I think it's fantastic. I embrace it because... With a podcast like this, it's not just for autistic people. It's also for parents or carers of autistic people. You may be autistic and be a parent of an autistic child like me. You may just be someone who is genuinely interested in learning more about autism, which I welcome and embrace. So I thought we'd do a new segment on the podcast And here's your chance to ask me anything, okay? Ask the autistic guy anything. There's a question you want to know about my personal experience and journey being autistic, something you've always wanted to ask an autistic person about autism, things that maybe you just felt you couldn't or you didn't want to, but you really want to know. I'm saying you can. I welcome your questions. Okay, so if you'd like to ask me a question about autism, something about my personal journey or whatever, there's a couple of ways you can do it. The first way is you can send me a message on my Facebook page, Orion Kelly, the Orion Kelly Facebook page, O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y. Or you can go to my website, which is orionkelly.com.au, so O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au, and send me a message that way. Either way, I'd love you to touch base, give me your question, and hopefully I can answer it on an upcoming episode of My friend, autism. Hey, come on. Ask a question. Ask the autistic guy. My friend, autism with Orion Kelly. Online at orionkelly.com.au. My guest on this episode is Senator Holly Hughes. Now, Senator Hughes is chair of the Senate Select Committee on Autism. We're going to learn all about this committee, so let's do it. Senator Hughes, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get down into some details on a fantastic new committee, do you mind sharing with us your personal connection with autism? So it's almost been, I guess, eight years now since my son was diagnosed with autism. And uh, like lots of parents, I really didn't know what that meant at the time. And we weren't really given very much information and we weren't given very much optimism. And 
one of the things that I've learned over the, the, the past eight years is that uh, parents tend to have a much better idea than probably the doctors um, ultimately of what their kids are possible, you know, uh, can possibly achieve um, and what their lives uh, can look like. You know, the, the, the parents and carers can be some of the best advocates for their, for their children going forward and that uh, if someone had told me eight years ago when it was, you know, a really difficult time and a really upsetting time because I didn't know what the future was going to look like for my son and my family, how wonderful things were going to turn out, how, you know, some of my favourite people in the world were going to turn out to be autistic and that there was lots of amazing things that were going to happen moving into the future. It would have been a much brighter period than it was and um, you know I think that there's a real disservice um, at that point of diagnosis and in those early days for lots and lots of families and I think certainly in the broader community we can do a lot better so um, personally I have a son with autism I've spent a lot of time um, working with lots and lots of groups and talking to lots of parents and lots of people with autism about how we can do better and I, I certainly think we can do that and I hope that that's what um, my contribution certainly in Parliament is um, going to contribute to that. And as an autistic person myself and I've got a mm-hmm. um, I've got an autistic son he's just started primary school you know I can relate to to everything you say as part of my podcast I always like to try and provide personal insights so people listening can get to know autistic people on a more complex level rather than this kind of a superficial way people view autistic people from your point of view as chair of the senate select committee on autism could you explain why it was established, and what are the objectives of the committee? So it's never been done before, and I think that was one of the most extraordinary things to me and to also a number of my Senate colleagues you know, across the political spectrum, is that the biggest single cohort of participants in the NDIS have never had some sort of examination of the condition in this level ever, ever done before. And so, you know, when we're looking at the NDIS, which is one of the biggest social and economic reforms that this country has undertaken since the introduction of Medicare, and we have very little idea around guidelines of diagnosis, we have very little around guidelines of best practice early intervention. We have very little information around best supports in the different transitions throughout a person's life. We have very little information around the differences between, you know, men and and women or girls and boys and particularly uh, looking at female diagnosis and why that's so different. There's very little information with regards to the interaction between the state systems and the federal systems. So when you don't have that information, it's very difficult for people to make informed decisions and best choices. So that was sort of one of the things behind it, that we really want to start to be able to put that framework in place. So whether it's policymakers, whether it's parents, whether it's people with autism, that there's some guidelines and there's some information that people have been able to put together and start to put together a really good framework around autism and that we can make sure that the community understands it a lot better, that we know it's get a bit of a sense. There's, you know, a massive spectrum there and there's all the different colours in between. You know, everyone is different and there's that great expression, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So we need to make sure that there's a framework in place 
that you know encompasses all of that and that people are able to make choices and that people on the autism spectrum are being supported properly. And I think that's one of the great things I've learned from doing this podcast, My Friend Autism. You know, I've spoken to a CEO with over 40 employees who has autism and runs the ICANN network, Chris Varney. I've spoken to autism. Yeah, Yeah, he's amazing. (laughs) You know, I've spoken to Autism Camp, Autism Swim. It's absolutely phenomenal, the, the amazing things that are coming up uh, you know, bubbling up to the surface from uh, autistics and and non-autistics who are coming up with great services, and and I I really applaud it, and, and I think this is I thank you for your work. I'm grateful for this, and and from my point of view, as an observation, it's certainly not a, a judgment. I think the NDIS can be really depressing for parents. With our, you know, with our son, we were basically forced to sit down and write as many pages as we can of things that are wrong with him to show the NDIS. These are all his weaknesses, all his deficits, so then they can help us with that when really we could have written 20 pages of his strengths and interests as well, but that's not mm. what they're after. So it's it's a really interesting time and I think everyone's grateful for what we have, but I think everyone is aware that we need to, we need to get better and, and understand more and that's where submissions are going to really come to the fore. The committee is inviting individuals and also organisations to make submissions. So what types of submissions are, are you seeking? And also, for those listening, who are you particularly interested in hearing from? Because the inquiry is going to run through to 2021, where you know we've got a little bit of time to really have a look at all different sorts of submissions. And I would expect we're going to see all different sorts of submissions. We're going to see academics, we're going to see um, people that are going to be putting things in from a very scientific perspective, so we'll see universities and we'll see people that, that, that study autism at a very high level and have evidence-based and do academic studies into it that we'll be putting in submissions, right down to parents putting in experiences and what they're thoughts are behind it and then we've also got people who are autistic, autistic themselves that are putting in submissions and, and some of them I, I met with someone today I've had people send me through copies of the submissions that they've put in themselves of who are both autistic themselves and people who are autistic themselves and also are parents of autistic children so it's going to come from every every corner of the autism community, if you like, are going to put submissions in, and that's what we want to see. And then over the next uh, eighteen months, once we start having inquire, you know, in holding hearings, we'll start to hear from some of those people in all, all around the country. Yeah, we and, haven't and put together the locations yet, but we will be starting to roll those out from April. Which will be fantastic. And from a point of view of those those non-academic people listening, you're asking for people to put something down on paper that shares their story, their experience, their hopes, their dreams, their wants, mm-hmm. their grievances. I mean, it, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but just to, to be helpful to the to real autistics listening. Is that, in effect, you don't care what they provide you, you just want them to provide you with something if they feel the need to. Is that about right? Absolutely. This is an opportunity to tell us what was great about your experience, what was terrible about your experience, and what you think can be done better. And I think it's a lot, you know, it's, it's a, the, the terms of reference are, are on our website. So if you go on to aph.gov.au, which is the Parliament House website, um, and go through parliamentary business and committees. If you just look for the Autism Select Committee or Autism Senate, you'll be able to find it. The terms of reference are there, and you'll see that they're very, very broad. So there's there's really nothing that you can't talk to us about. Yeah. Um, so there's pretty much anything there that you'll be able to talk to us about that you're interested in. Yeah. But you know, share those experiences. What what worked for you? What didn't work for you? What do you think we can be doing better? And this is 
the, the sorts of stuff that we want to start to get a bit of an understanding of. We want to start to bring that information together um, and think of things like most of the programs at the moment with early intervention around Australia are fundamentally in-home programs. And there's lots of people who can't do those, you know, whether it's emotional or intellectual or financial, for whatever reason, running those in-home programs don't work. But a lot of states and a lot of areas don't offer in-clinic solutions. You know, there's nowhere that you can send a child to get an in-clinic early intervention program that's autism specific. So whether or not those sorts of things would have helped you, whether there are, you know, something that would have been a benefit. What was the diagnostic process like for you? Was it very subjective or was it quite an objective process? Yeah. Were you given through a you know a psychologist that put you through an actual a proper series of tests, or was it just a pediatrician taking one look at your child and sort of blowing you off and saying, well, clearly they've got autism, which is a story we hear all too often. Yeah. You know, and and how is that process done? What was the follow up like? You know, then you see families who are given absolutely no guidance post a diagnosis. Where do they go after that? And um, this is one thing. You know, I've met with people that uh, I know who are parents and carers within the autism community who some of them are 8, 10, 15 years post-diagnosis and when we've held roundtable discussions with them thinking that I'd be talking to them about transitions in, in older teen transition to work, sort of transition to independence would be the topic of conversation, it always seemed to come back to the period after diagnosis and the isolation and the grief and the loneliness and the lack of direction they were given. And that might be what someone wants to talk to us about, the fact that there was no real information given to them. There was no guidance and there was a, a lack of direction of what sort of therapy options they should be looking at. And so whatever the, the issue might be for you, that is what we want to hear about, whether it's a transition to work program that's not working or a transition to independent living that's not working for yeah. you. Whatever it might be. We're also hearing from the girls, you know, lots of parents of girls that struggled to get a diagnosis for, for longer periods because, you know, they were blown off by the medical profession that girls don't get autism or they're presented differently. So we're going to have a look at that. You know, why is it that girls are taking longer to be diagnosed? And, and yeah. what is the presentation there? And this will be, you know, there'll be stories from autistics themselves. There'll be stories from parents and carers. And there will be, you know, and there will be information from academics that are, you know, backing that up with with evidence and studies. And we'll be looking internationally as well. So it's not just going to be focused on what's happening in Australia, but we'll be looking internationally for studies to back those things up, so that we can put together some national autism guidelines and national autism strategies to make sure that we're we're really trying to pin this down into something that, that that can best service everybody. And, you know, to be honest with you, Senator Hughes, my autistic brain has just gone into meltdown based on all the responses, Sorry. all the responses uh, that I could have given you on all those points. They're, they're all critical points you make. It's extraordinary. You would run out of time if you got me to answer all those questions. You would have to close well, up shop in 2030. That's how long it would take. No, I mean, and, look, and look, to be honest, the conversation I had today with one autistic woman herself was that, you know, the more we talked about it, the more I thought 2021 wasn't probably enough time. It's not. Um, it's not. <laughs> and, and, and can I tell you? Know, it's a start. It's it a is, start. It is. And my term it. is six years, so I've got another five and a half to go. <laughs> so we might have another crack after yeah, that. Yeah, and I, I, everything you say is critical. We, we need. I hope you can get answers to all those questions because I can give you a thousand answers to all those questions. And uh, I'd be uh, more than happy to talk uh, you know, for 12 hours nonstop at a public hearing. No worries. Let me know and I'll be there. Uh, but for, for, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'd just love to know your thoughts 
with regards to public hearings, people listening might not know exactly what that means. Just if you could kind of briefly explain what a public hearing is and also what the options are for those people out there that are interested that might want to sit at home and listen or watch or go there or be there. They might not know they can just go there and and watch. A lot of people don't know they can just go to a, a court in Australia and sit down and watch the court for the day if they want. I mean, you know, people aren't aware of these types of things. Do you mind just quickly breaking that down for those listening a bit about the public hearings and the access they have? Yeah, so on that same website that I gave you before, and um, I'm sure you'll have it on your podcast link, once we establish a set of dates, they will be advertised on the website and on the committee's website. And once they are public hearings, they are open inquiries. And so people are um, invited to present, but anyone can turn up and listen. And they are normally held, uh, we always try and hold them in the Parliament House of the relevant city that we are in. And if we're in a regional centre, look, it's whatever we can find is ultimately where we go, but they are, they're held in an open room that anyone can come into and listen. And um, what we do also try and do, depending on how this is going to work out, is we either have sessions where people can come and give evidence by request at what we call in-camera, so it's basically off the record. It's, it's private um, because otherwise it goes onto a, a Hansard, so a, a public record. So if people do have evidence they want to give that's, that's more private to the committee, we, we can arrange that. And then we also have, you know, obviously if you provide a written statement to the inquiry as a submission um, without giving uh, verbal evidence, the committee receives that. Um, most of them are broadcast, so you can listen to them. So people can sit at home and listen to them. And uh, or potentially, depending if they're where they are, but you, you can sometimes actually just watch them. I think they're broadcast on the web. Um, but so there's a multitude of ways that you can get involved and listen to them and, and um, participate um, with them. And then with our NDIS ones, we do quite often try and have a session in the afternoon at the end of the day where people can register to just make a quick statement. So you might not necessarily be there to give a full, you know, half hour of evidence and participate in a Q&A session, but you might just give, you know, a two-minute statement and take one or two questions from the committee. So we do try and, and offer that at the NDIS hearings, um, and it might be something that we look at at some of our Senate Select Committee inquiries as well. That'd be something I'd have to take to the committee and get them, you know, see if there are any grants too. But there are there are multiple ways that yeah. we do these sorts of things. And in the end, you know, you just never know. You know, one person might talk for ten seconds, and it might be the the critical information that you need to change the entire system versus you know a ten page submission or a thirty minute Q and A. Everyone is valuable, and that's what's so good about these types Brevity of... Brevity can be rewarded. Yeah, Brevity absolutely. can be rewarded. <laughs> I've never heard a politician say that in my life, but that's that's good. Uh, yeah, yeah I, brevity can be rewarded. You know, <laughs> as we like to say sometimes, you know, when we have a, uh, an opportunity to give a speech for a maximum of a period of time, <laughs> that that's a maximum, not a target. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, brevity yeah. can be rewarded. Okay. Yeah, no, no so that's, that's definitely <laughs> true. Yeah, and the, just for those listening at home, the Senator said brevity can be rewarded about five times and that explained what it was. The irony there is fantastic and entertaining. Now, Senator, the, the report is due to be presented, let's call it the interim report one, okay, in October 2021. <laughs> <laughs> How- 
no. The report will be October 21. It will, but you're going to have to go again. I don't want this to sound crude in any way, but how long do you anticipate we're actually going to have to wait for changes to be implemented? I mean, we've waited a long time already, but how long do you think... Look, it's going to depend what the report recommends and that's ultimately, you know, it's how long's a piece of string and it will depend what the recommendations are. I would suggest some of the recommendations are probably going to be already implemented as we do NDIS reviews as we go through as well. So you're probably going to find as NDIS inquiries occur, you're going to find probably some of these things start to happen at the same time as well. So there'll be some that will be quite quick. There are probably going to be others, depending on what they are, that are going to take longer to implement. Um, that, you know, just by the very nature of them are going to be longer in their implementation phase. You know, if you're looking at putting, you know, more investment into in-clinic solutions, if you've got to go out to the market to try and generate that or whatever you've got to do, that's not going to be an overnight kind of situation. So it's just going to depend on what the recommendations are um, as to how long they take. But certainly when you start to look at putting together best practice guidelines Mm. for what an early intervention program might look like, you would hope that the recommendations would include that best practice guideline. It's important to you acknowledge, know, isn't it, that you can't put a time frame on on things you're going to change when you don't know what that things are. Well, Those you things. don't know what they are. So, yeah, we can be rest assured, you personally, you know, you're invested in, in genuine change clearly with your own personal connection and I guess the amount of time and effort you're putting into this committee. So we're all reassured, but I don't need to tell you that, you know, the autistic community uh, probably feel like they've waited long enough and they would just love to be embraced by the wider community. Look, absolutely. But I think also one of the problems in the past, and, you know, I guess communities don't like to hear criticism of themselves, but, you know, the autistic community has also been quite divided And we've, you know, had situations where, you know, some autistic people have attacked parents because we've, you know, participated in early intervention programs that, uh, you know, older, more high-functioning autistic um, people then, you know, attack the parents for doing a lot of early intervention with the younger children. And, you know, it's going to have to take a lot of work for the autism community to come together and know that we're really trying to come up with you know, a set of solutions that work for everybody that ensure that that early intervention program outcome is giving people with autism the best opportunity to have a great life, to have a full life, to have their most independent life. But that, you know, we're not having a set of keyboard warriors attacking people at one end of the spectrum, that we don't get bogged into a debate whether you are autistic or have autism. You know, those sorts of arguments don't help anybody. No, and and Um, and and I think this is what we need to be careful of, that the community itself knows that we're working towards a set of solutions that we know, you know, is nothing is ever going to be perfect, but it's going to be as great and as strong and as good as we can possibly get and know that if we need to keep working on refining them, if we need to keep working on things, then that's what's going to happen. And as you say, I'm invested in this. There's lots of people invested in this, in making sure that, you know, autistic people in the autistic community, and when I say the autistic community, I include the parents and carers. Absolutely. Because we are just as invested. 100%. They are our... My son is my favourite human in the world. I want him to have the best possible life. I want him to have every opportunity that he can possibly have. You don't have to prove um, yourself. You know, sometimes, you know, you, sometimes you do feel like you need to because, you know, when we announced this inquiry, the first thing that happened was I got, an, you know, an email that was not particularly complimentary from one of the autism advocacy networks basically saying, who are you to do this? Okay, and it's well, like, well, you know, I'm pretty 
pretty invested in this. Yeah. But there are other people on the inquiry who care a lot about this but who don't have a direct connection. But they're the people we need to bring with us. Yes. They're the people that we need to bring in to the community. We need to introduce them to the community. We need to show them that the you know autistic people have such an amazing contribution to make and if we support them properly, if we give them opportunities – that that contribution can be significant. Yeah. And, you know, we need to bring those people with us. Yes. Not sort of show them, you know, a divided front because that's that's just not going to help anybody's cause. Completely unhelpful, absolutely. And, look, we don't live in an autistic world. We don't live in a neurotypical world. We live in nope. our world. That is what it is. Yeah. Before we go, I just wanted to ask you, I know it's a bit more broad and philosophical, but what is actually your hope for not only your own child but for – autistic Australians going forward? I'd like everyone, as I've said, you know, a couple of times through this, to just have the best opportunity for their fullest life possible. And that's going to look different for everybody. You know, it's never, ever going to look the same. And that's whether you're autistic or not. I have three children, one with autism. Every single one of them have different strengths and, and different deficits. And, you know, that means they're probably going to go to different schools. They're probably going to study different things. Everything's going to look different for them through their lives. But every single one of them should have the best opportunity to have the best life possible. And, you know, I just want, whether you're autistic or not, for those opportunities to be there for you and the supports to be there for you. And too often I feel within the autistic community, it's what early intervention service you land in if you land in one what paediatrician's office you land in if you land in one, you know, of where you end up and what sort of, uh, you know, service provision you get is what your parents are prepared to stand up and fight for. And this is where the NDIS can be so important because it's taken away a lot of that financial barrier that was there previously. You know, my son certainly received early intervention pre-NDIS that a lot of other people wouldn't have been able to do. And, um, you know, to level that playing field is what the NDIS is doing to ensure that a lot of people are going to get that best opportunity. And so that's really what I hope for, that, that people with autism receive the opportunity to, to have their best life, but that they are seen as a valuable contributor to our society and the fact that their brains work in ways, I've got to tell you, I still don't understand at times, but are absolutely magnificent. My son got a 4D New York jigsaw puzzle. He's 10 for Christmas. And he put the 3D buildings up in the order they were built. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it is the most amazing way of thinking and beautiful way a, a brain can work sometimes. And I want it to be seen for what it is and appreciated. Exactly. And and that's my hope for my son too. And, and you know, my hope for me, and, and that's why it's so important, not only this committee, but, you know, my podcast and being able to be open and honest with the community and understand that there are challenges. And, and that's why I'm so grateful for this. And I look at it like these are mental ramps. There's mm. physical ramps and there's mental ramps. And I'm looking for more mental ramps to be established mm. within our community. Just like it's it just it's goes without saying that if you build something, you have a ramp, right? Well, how yeah. about when we build communities, we have mental ramps. So your son, my son, they are able to do these extraordinary things they do. But also when they come across like no one wants to see them come across, which is just autistic, then there's mental ramps to help them rather than my experience as an adult, which is HR departments just think I'm, I can't play with nice with other people. I'm not a team player. I'm rude or I'm arrogant or whatever. And actually, in mm. fact, I was just autistic. Uh, and so yeah. that's my hope that we can find these mental ramps for our kids and, and for the community. And, and I hope that is what we will find. And I'm, I'm so grateful for your time. I easily found this for those listening. I simply just did a search, sent it 
select committee on autism, but you should definitely find out more about this committee. I know, Senator, that people can on the website can contact the committee directly. They can make submissions directly. There's instructions and information. So it's a, it's a great place to go. Yeah, no, all the information on the, the inquiry itself will be there. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to talk to you and I really do appreciate it. And best of luck with this committee. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. My pleasure, Orion. My guest was Senator Holly Hughes, Chair of the Senate Select Committee on Autism. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Join the conversation now at the Orion Kelly Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening to My Friend Autism. I really do appreciate it. And if the episode has resonated with you, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And If you'd like to continue the conversation, suggest a topic or area of autism to explore or just say hi, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook or send me a message via my website, orionkelly.com.au. And those are the two ways you can send me a question. If you've always wanted to ask me a question about autism, or always wanted to ask an autistic person a question about autism, well, I'm letting you do that on this podcast. Ask the Autistic Guy. Do it on Facebook or on the website, and hopefully I can answer your question in upcoming episodes. This podcast is here to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism, while providing real insights into life on the spectrum, together we can make the world a better place for autistic people. And remember, once you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. All I'm asking is for you to open your hearts and minds to people a little bit different to you and embrace the benefits of neurodiversity. Until next time, thanks for opening your mind and embracing differences. You've been listening to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. To join the conversation, get in touch with Orion and never miss an episode. Like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook or visit orionkelly.com.au.